This is Ryan Martin, the host of Psychology and Stuff. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you like psychology. And if you like psychology, you will love All the Rage, the podcast on anger and violence out of Phoenix Studios. On All the Rage, my co-host Chuck Ryback and I talk about everything from internet trolls to toxic masculinity to road rage. We bring you mad science, anger management tips, and tons of stories about people losing their cool. You can learn more about All the Rage and other Phoenix Studios podcasts at uwgb.edu forward slash podcast. All right, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psychology Program, and we are live from the Midwestern Psychological Association Conference in Chicago, Illinois. I'm here with Sophie and Sammy, who you've heard a lot from lately. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. So... So, okay, so if you're going to have to remind me of numbers, how many people are we interviewing over the next uh, couple days? 21 people. 21 different Posters. award-winning student research projects, um, which is really great. So these are uh, undergraduate students from universities across the Midwest yep. talking about their, uh, their research, their original research projects that they're presenting here. So very cool. What else? Should we know? So you've already done a couple of the interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, done a few so far. We have more today, and then a couple of tomorrow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there are topics ranging from like what were the topics Ring, we talked um, about? There was one on um, what was the criminal um, identifying oh identification the yeah, yeah versus like older adults and younger mm-hmm. adults that yeah. was fascinating yeah. and, and there's. The first people we interviewed, they used rats. rats. Yeah. yeah, and they've been working with the rats for quite a few weeks, which is nice. really interesting. Yeah, they have like 300 yeah. trials with yep. the rats. It's crazy. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, so good stuff coming up over the next couple of episodes here. We're going to put this out probably in two episodes. Um, which will be great. So mm-hmm. a couple of things, though. You can follow us on Psych and Stuff on Twitter and Psychology and Stuff on Facebook. I also want to say thank you to Stitcher because we are now on Stitcher. With that, we're going to go ahead and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Woo-hoo. So I'm Kyle Weavers. I'm Gage Grutz. And so what we were looking at, uh, we looked at previous research that uh, it kind of assimilated alcoholism to slower reversal learning and impaired behavior flexibility and in past research had looked specifically at uh, force exposure with rats and ethanol and that was adding a compound variable of stress so we wanted to eliminate that variable so what we did is we uh, gave the rats an intermittent access protocol which essentially models uh, what an alcoholic uh, that model, and so we gave them voluntary exposure to ethanol. Half of those rats had control uh, had ethanol. Half of them had water uh, to also give us that control as well. And so then, what we did after 17 weeks of giving them uh, ethanol intake, we then moved on to putting them in operant chambers to help them visually discriminate between levers and lights above the levers. And then once they met the trials to criteria for that, which was 10, and we moved them on to reversal learning, which basically flipped what they were doing in visual discrimination. And based on the research that we looked at, the rats should have gotten reversal learning within one trial in 100 sessions. You can see we're still running rats. They have seven sessions. 300 trials almost, and they still haven't gotten reversal learning. Uh, so that's a little frustrating for us, but uh, we, we look at um, the types of errors that they're making um, based on the research that we looked at. We based a lot of our methodology on Floresco from 2008, and there's two types of errors that we uh, 
see that the rats are making progressive or perceptive, and we see a lot of those rats are making perceptive errors, which just means we have perceptive rats. I mean, there's really no explanation for why they didn't get it within the 100 trials. So, But uh, we're definitely going to continue that, and then the next step of that is um, a set shifting task, which will be another task on top of this. But it's really interesting. You look at the ethanol intake over these 17 weeks between the male and the female. You see that the females are consuming a lot more ethanol, um, and there's a lot more variability as well. And you kind of see that uh, that the there we are. that so you see with the females they're, they're making less airs, even though they're making more ethanol, which we found pretty interesting as well. Interesting. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Is there uh, anything else you wanted to add? To talk Did I do about? okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you covered it all. I mean, yeah. uh, my name is Najiba Hussein. I'm a student at the University of Missouri, and I work in the Memory and Cognitive Aging Laboratory. And my research has to do with the effects of aging and verbal overshadowing on eyewitness identification. So, in cases of wrongful conviction, um, in the 300 cases surveyed, um, 70% of them cite eyewitness identification errors as a contributing factor. And when you look at this, along with the fact that older adults are frequently witnesses of crimes, um, it seems important to do more research into um, eyewitness testimony. Uh, and so there's this effect that's been replicated called the verbal overshadowing effect. And basically what this effect is, is that if a witness, uh, uh, if someone witnesses a crime and then subsequently they describe the perpetrator and their appearance, then on a lineup they'll actually do worse um, as opposed to if they didn't provide that description. So that's the verbal overshadowing effect. Um, so this effect has been replicated, but there hasn't been um, much research on the interaction between verbal overshadowing and aging. Um, and some of the existing findings are contradictory. So in this study, we tested older and younger adults, and we also used target present and target absent lineups. Um, and the reason that we did that was because um, if we use target absent lineups, we can separate discriminability from tendency to choose. So in this study, uh, we test younger and older adults, and we use target present and target absent lineups so that we can distinguish between um, a change in discriminability. And we use target present and target absent lineups so that we can distinguish between a participant's tendency to choose uh, and their change in discriminability. So in the present work, we address a gap in the literature by assessing the effects of verbal overshadowing and age on identification performance with both target present and target absent lineups. And this allows us to assess discriminability irrespective of response bias. And we also assess how reliable, um, via a value called the positive predictive value, or PPV, um, how reliable ID responses are. So in our procedure, um, the participant uh, watches a 30-second video, and then for five minutes they do a crossword puzzle, which is a distractor task. And then they either do the verbal overshadowing task, where they describe the perpetrator from the video, or they do the control task where they list dates and capitals. Um, and then after that, they'll either be presented with the target absent or target present lineup, uh, and they'll determine whether or not the perpetrator from the video is in the lineup. Um, and if so, they'll select who they believe the perpetrator is. And then after that, they rate their confidence on a scale from 1 to 100. So this is um, the table that just shows the response frequencies of younger and older adults. Um, 
For older adults, there are fewer suspect IDs and fewer filler IDs in the verbal overshadowing condition in comparison to the control condition, and that indicates more conservative responding in the overshadowing condition. So they were just less um, they were less likely to choose a person in general. So they were more likely to say that um, the perpetrator wasn't present. So they're more conservative responders. Um, and in order to estimate discriminability, we plotted the data in uh, ROC curves. And so as you can see here, um, for younger adults, discriminability was slightly lower in the verbal overshadowing condition, which um, is uh, what they found in the replicated studies, is that you'll do worse in verbal overshadowing. And that's what younger adults showed. Surprisingly, for older adults, they actually showed more discriminability in the verbal overshadowing condition. Um, but for both younger and older, these differences were not significant. So, to, so this looks at discriminability. This looks at reliability using um, PPB. So this is the equation for um, the positive predictive value. So if you look here for both younger and older adults, as um, their confidence in their decision increases, their reliability increases as well. And this is important because um, in real world criminal proceedings, um, high confidence identifications tend to be given the most weight already, according to a study by Mix in 2016. Uh, and so by looking at the data here, we can see that that should continue to be the case because um, the high confidence identifications are the most reliable. So, yeah. Yeah, of course. My name is uh, Wyndham Summers, and I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Laura Sinville. She's one of the professors at the psychology department at College of St. Benedict's uh, at St. John's University, and she's been fantastic through this entire thing. Um, so the project is titled Arousal Reappraisal and Interoceptive Awareness, How Awareness of Bodily Changes Facilitates Heightened Performance and Ability to Reappraise. So it's kind of a mouthful, but um, what it really was is we were looking at how people responded to different stressful situations, and then how different coping styles can benefit them during those situations with the added variable of how aware they are of their own physical response. So the idea was that people who are more aware of their physical response, that interoceptive awareness piece, um, would benefit more from certain coping styles than others. Alright, cool, that's really yeah. interesting. There, um, anything like, um, brought your research out that you want to talk about or any um, other further research you're going to do? Yeah, so what we ended up doing is we had participants complete two different stress tasks. They had to do a map test where they counted backwards from 998 in increments of three while I was telling them to go faster the entire time. So I'm saying, go faster, you're not going fast enough. Um, and then they also had to do a karaoke task where they were told to sing Don't Stop Believing. Um, and then it was using the Nintendo Wii system, so the game generates a score for me, and that's the performance score that they were given. And the entire time they were hooked up to a heart rate monitor and a skin conductance monitor, and we used the BioPack system. Um, but what we ended up finding was not a whole lot of significant results, but like a lot of trends towards significance. So um, the one I thought was most important really was within the math test. People in the suppression condition performed significantly worse than those in the no treatment control group, which is what you would expect with suppression because people um, are trying so hard to kind of ignore that stress that it takes away from their ability to perform cognitively on a task. Um, also within the suppression condition, we found that people with high interoceptive awareness, so people who are more aware of their physical response, um, scored significantly worse on the math test than those within the suppression condition with high or with low interoceptive awareness. Um, so that kind of tells us that 
it is an important variable to consider. It didn't really pan out as well as we were expecting in this population. Uh, the typical cutoff score you would use for interoceptive awareness is 0.85, and we had to use 0.71025 just because that's the way our population trended. So it was a lower peer group and then a higher sort of mixed group considering previous research. But um, future research, we kind of suggest people to use a two-appointment system where they do the heartbeat perception task to determine high IA and low IA first so they don't like interpret that as one of the stress tasks. And then you can kind of determine what your group sizes will be after that. So going forward, I'd love to continue doing it. It's just kind of fleshing it out and getting more participants to see if there's significance later on. That's really interesting. Thank you. Congratulations on your research. Thank you so much. My name is Muriel Stanley. I'm with Northeastern Illinois University. Um, the research I'm presenting today is in collaboration with Northeastern Illinois University and Dr. Brecky Church and the University of Chicago and Dr. Susan Golden Meadow. And I am, this is a large NSF grant, uh, a, a project much larger than my research, but I'm just looking at a small part of gesture re research in education, in an educational setting, particularly in math, in, in math instruction. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found and like what your yeah, methods were? Sure. So we initially um, we asked two research questions: um, whether gesture and actually enhances learning, and if so, does it matter when the gesture occurs with speech? So we are manipulating the timing of the gesture, and the design that we have, that we use is um, we present mathematical equations to second and third graders in a pre-test, training, post-test um, design. Uh, we have different types of problems that we present, and we have four different conditions where we manipulate the timing of the gesture. So we have a control of speech only, then we have a, a, a condition where speech and gesture occur at the same time as they naturally would, and then we manipulate in two conditions where speech comes first and then gesture, and gesture comes first and then speech. And what we found is, in line with previous research, that gesture instruction enhances learning more than if it's just speech instruction. And interestingly, among the um, four conditions that we experimented with, we found that no children learned in the speech-only condition. More children learned in speech followed by gesture. But the most learning occurred when gesture and speech occur at the same time or even when gesture comes before speech. That was what our most interesting finding was that when gesture comes before speech, it somehow works. And we think it might be because it just draws the children's attention. Yeah. Thank you. Let us know anything about the other research that is being done with this? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, this is a smaller section. We're still collecting data. Um, and what, what this NSF grant is actually looking at, I'm only analyzing the hearing children's data, um, but they are also actually collecting data and doing these same experiments with deaf children. And then actually um, comparing the hearing population with the deaf population to see if gesture has the same effect in a population that uses a gesture-based language, ASL. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Thank you. Right, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Congratulations on your research. Thanks so much. Thanks.
So my name is Karen Bonia and I go to Loyola University Chicago. So my project was on parenting and we looked at it as a moderator between uh, the relationship between um, community violence and child externalizing and internalizing symptoms. Um, so what can I tell you about it? Um, can you tell us a little bit about your method and what you found with your research? Yeah. So we worked with low-income Mexican origin families, and our sample was 104. And the requirements for that were that they were 150% below the poverty line, and also they had to have one child between the ages of 6 and 10, and also uh, one parent had to be born in Mexico. And we had... We also measured violence using ArcGIS, which is a major part of this study, given that it was objectively measuring crime. So what we did was we used the Chicago data portal, and then we geocoded crimes that we found based off that, and then we linked it to the participants' addresses. Um, so for our results, we found that parental warmth was a protective factor, both cross-sectionally and longitudinally. For parental monitoring, the results were really interesting because um, past research has found that it's advantageous to monitor in low-income areas um, and also in high-crime areas. But what we found was that in the lower-crime area, it led high monitoring led to less symptoms, while in high-crime areas, uh, high monitoring led to higher externalizing symptoms. But one reason for this could be that our sample is really restricted, so everyone is low income. Um, so everyone more or less lives in like a kind of violent neighborhood. So it could be that um, monitoring is advantageous for uh, violent neighborhoods, but once that violence reaches a certain level, the protective effects of monitoring disappear. So it's the idea that perhaps in violent neighborhoods, uh, parents supervise um, in harsher and stricter ways, which then um, could cause like a strain on the child-parent relationship and then um, encourage rebellion in the form of externalizing symptoms. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add or want us to know about? Uh, that's kind of the main gist of our study, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to look at our poster. Thank you, and congratulations, and good luck on your further research. Thanks. Okay, so I'm Ashley Cardenas. Um, my research is on how childhood neglect impacts our future relationships in adulthood. And um, so what we did was we just inter... We didn't. We surveyed... Um, we surveyed college students, and we surveyed them about their experiences of neglect and their uh, their attachment styles and romantic relationships now. And we found we found significant um, correlations between the experiences of, of neglect that they have and then the um, anxious and avoidant attachment styles in adulthood. Cool. Uh, would you be able to tell us a little bit of, a little bit more about your methods and? Um, what everything you found? Yeah, okay. So, um, what we used to survey about the experiences of um, neglect was the child experiences of care and abuse questionnaire. And um, that was actually derived from an interview. And so, using that interview, she came up with um, cutoff scores for experiences of neglect that can be clinical. And so, um, we actually only had 8% reach. The, that cutoff score for mother neglect and 13% reached that cutoff score for father neglect, which I think is really interesting because even though we found like so there's such a small amount, we still had such strong correlations. So, um, and then to, to look at the attachment styles, 
we uh, we did the experiences and close relationships questionnaire and that just looked at um, the levels of insecurity that you have anxious and avoidant insecurity and so that's where we got our four variables we had mother neglect father neglect anxious uh, anxious insecurity and avoidant insecurity and then yeah we just found the correlations between those I think that if this research were to be continued, um, it, it should definitely be done outside of a college student population because, um, like I said, with our college student population, we did not have very many that actually reached that cutoff score. And I think outside of that student population, there would be more. There would be more experiences of neglect. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. And no problem. Congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> My name is Ananda Easley. I'm a junior from Luther College, and this is kind of the summary of the summer research I was doing with Dr. Bishop. Um, it was a student-faculty collaborative project. And so going in, we decided we were going to use Mechanical Turk, which is an Amazon platform that pays workers to take our surveys. And we were looking at Erickson's stage of generativity versus stagnation. So in this stage, pretty much, you invest yourself in the next generation, you volunteer, um, you have children, and we were looking at how generativity scores correlate with overall alcohol consumption. So people who are less generative, we expected to be drinking more. It's like you think of a typical alcoholic sitting at home on their couch, not really going out and investing much. And so what we actually found, once we broke it up into quintiles, um, was that the people in the top quintile were the heaviest drinkers, people in the bottom quintile, so like the lowest 20% of drinkers, uh, that correlated with generativity and kind of this haystack function. So it turns out moderate drinkers are the most generative. And that's not what we expected to find whatsoever, but has great implications. And we also looked at if employment status, marital status, and education levels would moderate this. They have no moderating effects whatsoever, but we did find that on their own they're highly correlated with generativity. So um, pretty much the picture we got of this is if you want to be a generative middle adult, I suppose, <laughs> you have to be married, work full-time, have more education, and then drink moderately. Okay. <laughs> All right. Interesting. But we can't establish um, causational relationship at this point. It's only correlational data. So. All right. So is there anything else you want to add or further research that you're going to be doing with this? We thought this was pretty comprehensive, but we are hoping to do a longitudinal study. Potentially that would be a great expansion to our work and establish more of a causational relationship there. let us know about what you found um, or about work you're doing? Yeah. I think really this just came about because I took advantage of an opportunity the college had. So if I was telling somebody else about this, I would just suggest like talk to people, take advantage of those opportunities, and really get yourself involved wherever you can. That's great. Thank you so much. And congratulations yeah. on your research. Thanks. Hi, my name is Anna Lundquist, and um, my research is titled Understanding Mental, Mental Health, A Closer Look at Depression. And basically, with this research, we looked at the symptom severity effects of the stigmatization of depression. And we looked at things like social distancing, social distancing behaviors and scales. 
And we found that um, people in general, these are participants from the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, we have 79 participants take the survey. We found in general that people with more depressive symptoms are more stigmatized than people who have less depressive symptoms or little to no depressive symptoms. And factors such as mental health literacy, how much they know about mental health in general, and how much they understand people with mental health, and how, um, what are their attitudes towards helping behaviors like therapy and counseling, people with higher levels of those understandings uh, tended to stigmatize majorly depressed individuals, people with high sim- number of symptoms, less than people who didn't have that um, understanding. Also, people who had higher levels of depression themselves, they should be CESD, people with higher levels of depression themselves tended to stigmatize people with uh, more depressive symptoms less than other people. Okay. All right. Um want to talk a little bit more about um, your method and how you found your uh, My method? Okay. So we set it out in survey format and we had five vignettes adapted from original researchers and we um, the big variability within this these uh, vignettes were the number of symptoms because we're looking at symptom severity. So two vignettes uh, represented a high condition with a lot of depressive symptoms enough to like qualify them for something like major depressive disorder. Two vignettes that were... Um, low condition, they had some depressive symptoms, but not enough to technically qualify them for something like major depressive disorder, and one control vignette that had little to no depressive symptoms. And then what they did is they took a social distancing scale relating to that vignette after they read about each each one, so social distancing after each vignette. We also had them take, after doing that social distancing thing, had them take the mental health literacy scale to gauge their understanding of mental health, and the CESD by Radlaw for depression assessment. Is there anything else that you want to know about your research or further research that you might be working on? Um, actually, I am working with Dr. Garong right now to kind of expand on this research. So this was done with college students. We're looking at the difference with older adults. So we did with the Lifelong Learning Institute at UWGB. We're working on analyzing it right now, but right now we kind of see that it's kind of the same, that the high conditions are more stigmatized and things like that. Um, so it's kind of the same across genera- generations, but we're still working on um, comparing that data. And we also worked on intervention, and we're also um, in the middle of analyzing that data. Uh, if we show them a video of intervention about mental uh, depression, um, will that lower their stigmatization in general? Okay. All right, great. Thank you so much, and congratulations. All right, thank you. My name is Anthony Rogers. And our research basically looked at the effects of education about depression on mood. So depression is commonly taught from three different perspectives, those being biological, sociological, and psychological. So biological perspective includes things like genetics and chemical imbalances, like that's why you're depressed. And then sociological perspective talks about things like racism and poverty. And then the psychological perspective attributes it to like cognitions, negative thoughts, and negative behaviors. And so what we found is um, we had people come in. So our participant came in, they took a mood questionnaire, and then they watched a 10-minute presentation on one of those three perspectives. And these were all psych majors that hadn't had abnormal psychology, so they hadn't really discussed or learned about the different perspectives yet. And so then they watched the 10-minute presentation about one of the perspectives and wrote about a time they felt sad, blew or down in like the past year. 
And so after they wrote about it, they took another mood questionnaire, and we kind of looked to see how their mood changed from having taken the um, 10-minute lecture and then written about it. And we found that people who learned from the biological and sociological perspective actually had lower well-being after taking the questionnaire the second time, whereas people who wrote from the psychological perspective had um, decreased sadness and increased positive affect. So it suggests that the biological and sociological well, um, sociological perspectives decrease mood in general, or a psychological perspective leads to an increased mood. And reasoning behind this is what we think is that based off past research about learned helplessness theory, people who attribute their causes of depression to external factors generally tend to have lower well-being or a lower mood. And this relates to the biological and sociological perspective, being that biological, you know, if it's genetics and chemical imbalances, oh, these are things outside of my control, I can't really help it, and they're affecting me. Whereas with psychological, you can say, oh, you know, there are things that I can do to work on my thoughts and my behaviors and kind of intervene with that so it's more under your control. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's basically what we found. That's great. Thank you. Is there any other information you want us to know or further research you might be doing with this? Uh, yeah, we've actually done a couple studies going off of this study. One was based on external locus of control, so if you think things around you happen outside of your control. And we found similar results where the biological perspective um, led to decreased mood or like um, higher levels of external locus control also led to decreased mood and things like that. But basically the takeaway from all of the projects that we've done on it suggests that teaching people about depression from a psychological perspective can lead to better um, better well-being, better mood in general. So even though depression is you know, caused by all three and a mix of all three, when you're teaching people or working with depressed individuals, going at it from a psychological perspective is probably the most beneficial way to go, at least based off of our findings. All right, that's great. Thank you so much and congratulations on your... Yeah, thank you. Thank you for All right, and that does it for this first episode from the Midwestern Psychological Association Conference. We are going to be back for another episode next week. This is a two-parter, so we've been covering a bunch of research this time around. We're going to cover more research next time around. I want to say a special thank you to the people who uh, did the interviews. Uh, Sophie, that's you. Uh, Katrina Weber. Uh, and uh, Sammy. So. Sammy Elger Fieser. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. So, uh, this is being live streamed, by the way, for those of you listening at home. Um, I also want to say a thank you to uh, another thank you to our intern, Sophie Seeland. Thank you, Sophie. I want to say a thank you to Kimberly Vliest, our podcast artist, and our producer, Kate Farley. That is it for today. We will be back next week with more interviews from the Midwestern Psychological Association here in rainy, rainy Chicago.